their tapes, court documents say Jeffrey Epstein kept blackmail videos of Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, and Sir Richard Branson having sex with women Epstein supplied. How could something so scandalous stay secret so long? High expectations. We won't lose one vote. President Trump projects a big win in Iowa. Bill O'Reilly on whether Trump is setting himself up for disappointment. All out war. Israel takes out another senior Hezbollah commander in Lebanon. Why the Jewish state will likely defy President Biden and his team. To work toward long-term peace, security, and stability in the region as a whole. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst just returned from the Middle East to tell us the ground truth. America hates kids, proclaims one major American website. Hillary Clinton would have agreed in 1996. It takes a village. The new data peddled to show Europeans do better raising their kids and why it's all wrong. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, Epstein Explained. New allegations out today tell us why the rich and powerful hung out with Jeffrey Epstein, gave him money, and protected him. He had tapes. Well, to be fair, we have no idea if he had tapes or if the FBI has the tapes now, or if the tapes even existed. But Epstein accuser Sarah Ransom at some point said there are tapes. Here's pictures of Ransom at Epstein's private island. She was there in her early 20s when Epstein allegedly took a liking to her. The new accusations come from depositions and subsequent emails that have come to light in a lawsuit against Maxwell and Epstein. From the files, Ransom claims, I can personally confirm that I have, with my own two eyes, seen the evidence of which these sexual acts, which clearly identifies Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Richard Branson, having sexual intercourse with my friend, the friend being another Epstein girl. In other words, the evidence is the tapes that Epstein kept blackmail. She claims to have seen them. She claims to have copies. There are a lot of accusations from Sarah Ransom. But the tapes are huge, and if you think about it, suddenly everything about Epstein makes sense. But Ransom, to be fair, has some serious credibility problems. For example, in one email, she retracted all of the allegations she made to investigative journalist Maureen Callahan. And the story itself seems crazy. Bill Clinton's sex tapes that somehow stayed secret through years of FBI investigations, lawsuits, and Epstein's death... And Epstein showed these tapes to one of his many victims, or one of the other victims showed it to one of the other victims, but it's never leaked anywhere else. It all seems, really to be fair, a little too perfect. Again, according to Ransom about conversations between Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, I'm sure if you go into a hooker's brothel and see how they run their business, it's just general conversation about who's going to have sex with who. That makes sense, considering the number of women on Epstein's island. So at this point, let me issue a disclaimer. My mother is watching. She watches every night. Thank you. And the sordid life of Jeffrey Epstein is anything but PG. It's not even R-rated. It's X-rated. So we're going to do our best to handle the descriptions of events of Epstein's past and these allegations so my mother doesn't have to change the channel. That in no way should diminish how awful these allegations are. For the first time, we are seeing new pictures of the young girls who Epstein brought to his island. 
And for the first time, we're hearing accusations that kind of finally make sense. And Ransom told a crazy story about Donald Trump having sex at Epstein's mansion, described in detail his sexual proclivities, but then recanted. The tapes would explain everything, right? Literally everything about the Epstein story, but they've never come out. Maybe that's because they don't exist. Ransom has an explanation, at least it relates to the Clintons. She claims that representatives of the Clintons pressured her friend, who had multiple liaisons with the former president, quote, a couple of months later, she, the friend, was then approached by special forces men sent directly by Hillary Clinton herself. They heavily intimidated her and ruffled her up and was forced to sign a confidentiality agreement. She was then given a substantial payout directly from the Clinton Foundation to keep her quiet. If she breaks the agreement, she is dead. Three men can keep a secret when two are dead, of course. So it's all possible. But it seems, to be fair, far-fetched. But then again, something must connect all the dots, and that's what we've never been able to figure out. All these pictures of young, innocent women brought to Epstein's island by the dozens. And we know Epstein hung out with rich and powerful men. And then there are the islands and jets and the Upper East Side mansion. The tapes would explain it all. Tapes of the super famous would mean tapes of other men existed. Men of power, men of substantial wealth, perhaps not household names. Epstein told many people he was a money manager, but records show he was not a particularly good one. His former lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, had a theory about that. I think he had some things over some other people. I think he had some extortion over some people. Right. That would explain everything. Gloria Allred's here. She represents 20 of Epstein's victims. We appreciate you being back with us, ma'am. Thank you. I don't, I don't want to ask you to talk about attorney-client and privileged information, but I want to get this. Just hypothetically, have you ever heard of a secret so salacious as tapes of Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew having sex and existing for almost 20 years and something like that being kept successfully secret? Uh, that would be surprising if that were the case. Um, as to Ms. Ransom, apparently there are a number of reports that she uh, said to uh, a reporter that she had invented uh, that story. Uh, she did not provide the sex tapes, which allegedly she had seen uh, uh, to a reporter who asked for them from the New York Post. Uh, and so uh, since she appears to have retracted what she said, I don't think we could rely on it. Now, that doesn't mean the tapes don't exist or do exist, but it does mean that there does not appear to be corroboration for what she said, even from her. As you've, as you've studied the Epstein case for so long, have you been able to connect the dots of where Epstein was getting all this money from and why all of these, not only sort of the most powerful people in the world, but why others were willing to be around him, were willing to give him money to manage? Have you been able to piece that together? Uh, well, I mean, Alan Dershowitz, whom you just showed, who did represent uh, defendant Epstein, uh, really appears to suggest that his client was blackmailing, uh, extorting, which is 
very interesting uh, and would tie together a lot of information. I, I do think that there were some photos. I don't know whether there were tapes. Um, and um, this is, uh, of course, a great concern to any victims who would not want inappropriate photos of them, especially if they were victims of sex trafficking, uh, which many of them were when they were underage uh, sex trafficking by Mr. Epstein. They wouldn't want those photos and or tapes, if they exist, to be released. But my point is right now, there does not appear to be any public evidence that there were tapes of Trump, President Clinton, um, or Prince Andrew that are there. So it doesn't mean there isn't any evidence, doesn't mean there is, but there is none that is publicly confirmed. So Sarah Ransom uh, settled a lawsuit um, with Jeffrey Epstein back in the day, as I'm sure you're well aware. This was uh, her talking about Ghislaine Maxwell. Take a listen. And I was not the only girl on that island. There was a constant stream of girls being raped over and over and over again. And yes, Ghislaine must die in prison. So Maxwell's in prison. Epstein's dead. Justice, though, requires that other people who were involved in this be held responsible. And I'm wondering if you're, in your opinion, justice has been served and that everybody who did bad things has been held responsible or are there still others that need to be held to account? Well, since I don't represent all of the many, many victims that there are, I can't say whether or not there are others uh, who have not been accountable. Uh, we have helped to make accountable uh, some of the rich and the powerful and the famous who have hurt uh, some of the victims and who uh, were introduced to the victims uh, by Jeffrey Epstein. So uh, I can't go farther than that, but there is some civil accountability uh, in some confidential settlements. Uh, but that's not complete accountability because the only one who has been prosecuted criminally is Ms. Maxwell. And of course, mm. Mr. Epstein was being prosecuted, but then reportedly he committed suicide uh, while he was in custody. So there never was a trial in that case. As to the defamation case brought against Mr. Maxwell, against Ms. Maxwell by Virginia Guffrey, that case was settled, so that case never went to trial. Yeah. Of course, what's being released right now are a lot of names. There are a lot of accusations, um, but we don't know for certain. We have, you know, we're just speculating as to whether, for example, those tapes actually right. exist. Counselor, I've done this for a very long time, and rarely have I heard a more carefully worded answer than I just heard uh, to that to that question. Uh, I, I underlined and wrote, as you said, the word some a few times. So we will uh, stay tuned, as we say in this business. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very evidence-based, yes, fact-based, as I know you are, too. Yes, ma'am. New video appears to show the moment Israel assassinated a senior Hezbollah leader, the attack is new proof that the IDF appears interested 
in provoking a war with Hezbollah. It's something we've talked about over the last week. And now others are catching on from the Associated Press. With each strike, fears grow that Israel, the U.S., and Iran's allies are inching closer to all-out war. No kidding. The Biden administration sent Secretary of State Antony Blinken to the Middle East on a wide-ranging tour in an effort to, in their words, de-escalate. He's about halfway through his trip to eight different countries. Today, he sounded optimistic when speaking about the administration's deterrence policy. Everywhere I went, I found leaders who were determined to prevent the conflict that we're facing now from spreading, um, doing everything possible to deter escalation, uh, to prevent a widening uh, of the conflict. Deterring escalation is really half a sentence. You need the other half or else before you could actually deter escalation. And so far, the Biden administration has not provided that. The Iranians sometimes view that just as weakness. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst just returned from the Middle East herself, member of the Armed Services Committee, also company commander in the National Guard during Operation Iraqi Freedom. It's nice to see you, ma'am. Thank you. We appreciate it. Um, Earlier, I heard uh, from the Secretary of State saying that he wanted to plan to bring long-term peace and stability uh, to the Middle East. Is that possible as you see uh, things right now? Well, I think there will be peace if Israel can wipe out Hamas, if we see other terrorist leaders taken out, as we have seen with the leader um, in Lebanon. Uh, But we've got a long ways to go, and we need strong American leadership. And this is where we see the United States failing, is that we do not have a strong commander-in-chief. You mentioned the or else part of that. And we have not shown the rest of the world that there is an or else. We have the Houthis, we have Hezbollah, we have other Iran proxies striking American troops, not to mention what happened on October 7th, which was horrific. Um, But when it comes to Americans, and I'll remind everyone that Hamas is currently holding six Americans hostage, as well as the over 30 Americans that were killed on October 7th. Um, They continue to strike at Americans across the Middle East uh, with those proxies. And yet the United States has done very little to respond. We don't hear strong words coming from the administration. And a matter of fact, they're actually telling uh, the Israelis that, oh, maybe you need to back off a little bit. And that's absolutely unacceptable. As you went through the Middle East on your trip, uh, I'm wondering what surprised you the most, what worried you the most, what reassured you the most? Well, I do feel uh, very, I won't say very optimistic, but I do feel better about leaning in and pressuring some of these countries on release of the hostages. Egypt is involved in negotiations with Hamas, as is uh, the Qataris. Um, Bahrain is a very good uh, partner to us in the Middle East. And of course, we have other nations like Jordan that will be involved as well. Um, But I do feel very good about visiting with those leaders, making sure they understand that we must have Americans returned uh, and that we must find peace and stability in the Middle East. But that doesn't involve the engagement of terrorists. So I feel good about the message being received by uh, those leaders. 
but time will tell. And unfortunately, the families of these hostages, all they can do is, you know, promote their loved ones, but then they have to wait. And I hate that for them. And it's sheer agony for these families. Yeah, we had one on last Friday, so I, I hear you there in terms of what they're, they're going through. It's nice to see you, Senator. Thank you very much. We'll be watching your home state closely a week from tonight. I won't make you make any predictions, but I think you can yeah. predict the weather. Will be, it'll be cold, right? That's what I hear. It will be cold, Leland, so everybody bundle up and get out to your caucuses if you are in Iowa. It's going to be an exciting night. It will be indeed. We'll talk soon. Uh, Coming up, we invite you to sign up for War Notes. Gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. Our thoughts about the most important and interesting stories of the day. Some of our favorite clips on social media as well. Warnotes.com to subscribe for free. Feel free to comment at Leland Vittard on Twitter or Instagram. Speaking of Iowa, it's down to the wire there, maybe. Former President Trump, though, isn't worried. Our expectations, well, a little too high. Bill O'Reilly with us on that next. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to win this one, and it's going to be the biggest single political event in the history of our country. And according to one major American publication, America hates its kids. One American mother has some thoughts on that. We'll see her in a minute. Here in Iowa, 7 p.m., Martin Luther King Day, so don't stay home, just please, you know? The polls are showing we're going to win by a lot. And all eyes are now on Iowa. And so while we've got all eyes on Iowa, this is the time where we make our case to you. Why can we make your life better? I think we're going to win the Iowa caucus on January 15th. That's not up to me, though. That's up to you. So I'm asking for your help. You have a chance to really change the trajectory of this country. So, And if you haven't signed up for us, hopefully at the end of this, uh, you'll be willing to sign up, commit, and work on our behalf. One week out from the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. As you could hear, candidates making their final campaign push. New Decision Desk 2004 numbers out. Today, Donald Trump holds a firm lead, 52% in Iowa. Nikki Haley just behind Ron DeSantis, 17 to 18%. So in the margin of error, Vivek Ramaswamy at 6%. With us now, anchor of the No Spin News, Bill O'Reilly. Bill, good to see you as always. Um, We're marking the tape. You care to make a prediction? I think that Trump will win by a lot um, because the MAGA people dominate the Iowa caucuses. Simple as that. These are very hardcore, longtime conservative people. Um, Donald Trump's theme is if you uh, get me back into the White House, I will avenge uh, the people who are ruining the country, not just change the policies, but I'll go after them. Um, And whether he will or not doesn't matter. It's uh, all about the MAGA people and the very um, committed right wanting to punish the opposition at this point. And the very far left wants to punish the very far right, you would argue, and others would argue that they're already doing doing that. Yeah. Uh, Hold on. But I want to play this soundbite of President Trump talking about those who have been arrested and convicted of crimes for January 6th. Take a listen. They ought to, you know what they ought to do? They ought to release 
the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They had to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. He's getting a lot of coverage, understandably. Forget for a second whether he's right or wrong. I'm wondering if it's good politics. I get that it works in the caucus, it fires up the base, but he doesn't need to fire up the base. He's going to win the the nomination almost certainly. Doesn't this just play into Joe Biden in Democrats' hands? Yeah, if I were uh, Donald Trump's advisor, I would have stricken that out of the uh, presentation. You don't want to relitigate something like that when you are dependent on independent votes, dependent on independent. So Trump will win uh, the primaries. He will be the Republican nominee unless something happens that we're not aware of. Uh, The Democrats already know that. They're already running against Trump. They're not running against Nikki Haley or uh, DeSantis. DeSantis will have to drop out probably next Wednesday, maybe Tuesday, uh, after he loses in Iowa because he can't raise money. And he doesn't have a, a big fund like Trump has to fall back on. Haley will do okay in Iowa, um, and then she'll do better in New Hampshire. So she'll be around, but certainly it is inconceivable at this point in history that anyone would be Trump for the nomination. What does that mean? In Trump has tried hard, and he's I wouldn't say rigged the deck, but he's certainly arranged the deck to try and shore up the nomination. So he's the presumptive nominee, uh, maybe right after Super Tuesday, which would be before most of his trials start, if they even do start on time. Does him being able to say, I am the presumptive Republican nominee and now I am on trial, does that change how things are going to happen, not necessarily in the in the actual courtroom, but in the court of a public opinion that's going to affect the courts and affect Democrats who would be prosecuting the presumptive nominee? A little bit, uh, because Americans don't want to be told who to vote for um, by taking people's names off ballots or by making it impossible for them to campaign. Um, so a little bit. But minds are made up. You're only fighting, Leland, for about maybe 20% tops of votes between Biden and Trump. And that's all there is out there. Everybody else is committed. The New Hampshire uh, situation is murky because so many independent liberals can vote for Nikki Haley, and they will. A lot of money coming into New Hampshire to get those people out to vote for Nikki Haley to make Trump look bad. And I can guarantee you, the day after the New Hampshire primary, all of the corporate media will go, oh, Trump lost, even though he might not lose uh, the primary, but if it's close, that's what they'll do. They'll hammer Trump, Mm -hmm. he's a loser, he doesn't have popular support, on and on and on and on. And the Democrats want that. They want to erode Trump, make him look weak in New Hampshire, and that could happen. Yeah. You said 20 percent undecided in America. I was going to go with more like 2 percent, but um, we, we shall see. Uh, by the way, congratulations. I'm on talking continuing... about. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I do. I'm talking about persuadable at this point. Um, okay. You know, the others are in stone. And you're congratulating me on what, Leland? I, I mean, there are so many keep... things that you could. <laughs> we ran out of time to, to, for the whole list. It was going to be on killing the witches, but you know now, now that you've, you mentioned, there's a long list. I don't know if I can come to go through the whole thing. But no, you get uh, it. witches is good. 
Okay. Which is as good, uh, 300,000 copies sold. And I mean, in this day and age when people are addicted to this and their concentration spans about 30 seconds, sell 300,000 hardback books, we're real happy with that. And I appreciate it, Leland. Happy New Year, 2024. Buckle up. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Bill. Kids are worse off in America than in any other rich country. It's by design. Now that I have your attention, we didn't write that line. Lydia Kiesling did for Business Insider, quote, why America hates its children. Kids are worse off in America than in any other rich country. It's by design. She waxes poetic about how much better life is in Europe for young kids. This is after a vacation she took to Greece. One of her many gripes is that the U.S. ranks 32nd out of 38 countries in the leading Western trade alliance for spending on early childhood. It's the very definition of Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village. We asked Lydia to come on. She was too busy. Elizabeth Pran knows a thing or two about raising kids. Actually, three. You have three kids. There you go. Um, I don't know, Liz. Were you surprised to find out that if you really loved your kids, you'd move to Greece and raise them there? Well, what I was surprised to learn is that my kids have it so tough. I will admit that if I wanted a better life, I would die and come back as one of my very spoiled yet lovely children who I'm trying to make functioning members of society. Okay, so I tried to really dig into this article and think maybe where is she coming from. So I'm going to start with the critical, and I want to see what you have to think, because what can parents do better and I want to think what I'm, I want to hear what you have to say about this because I I do I will tell you that when I look at parents across the board, I do think that maybe we're struggling with the narrative that we're creating. If you look at, at parents in in the line to pick up their children, a lot of them are on their phones, and we have this digital addiction. So I'm sort of curious on what we're doing worse or better than we were 10 or 20 years ago. So that would be my only gripe. Now with with Lydia and with the article. I'm sort of curious on, on what, where is she getting that from? And I'm curious on what you have to say, because does she think it's better maybe in, in Palestine or Syria or Yemen? If there's any place you want to be a kid, she was, I would argue it would be here in the United States. Yeah, she was pretty specific to Greece and Sweden, yes. because she argued people there get more time off. What I think is interesting about all of these articles, right, is they talk about parental leave or how much is being spent on child care, but they don't talk about the, the real factors that we know that go into kids' success, things like U.S. kids living in a single-parent household, 15 million living with a single mother, 3 million living with a single father. They don't talk about the single no, biggest... No, you can't say that. That's offensive. Oh, I'm sorry. Right? Nowadays, that's offensive. Well, when you talk about that children should be in this two-parent household, you saw the Wall Street Journal article today, then people get offended. And I don't even care if it's, I, I think we've had this conversation, I don't care if it's a man and a dinosaur or a woman and a unicorn. There needs to be two people in the household raising these children. You know better than anyone that a lot of us, maybe me, have career aspirations. I have one job right now, and it's with my husband to raise children. The career's going to have to come later. There has to be some sacrifices yeah. in order to raise decent children. And you can't always look at the government. She kept on alluding to all these government subsidies. What about the fact that we need to start in the home? She pointed right, to gotta, gun violence and that 
So I know a lot about what's going on and what keeps me up are the things that I know. That's for too long haunted this nation. What is that poison? White supremacy. Oh, it is. It's a poison throughout our history. It's ripped this nation apart. It says no place in America. It's President Biden today. Today's message was part two of his reelection campaign. White supremacy has no place in America. And that is accurate. But here's the problem for President Biden. White supremacy does not exist as a meaningful threat, accepted political ideology or significant problem in America today. Successful presidential campaigns focus on aspirational messages about the future, not promises to fight something that is repugnant, but that is already universally scorned in America. Loyal Democrats know they have a problem. Much like going to war with the army you have, presidential re-election campaigns must campaign with the president they have. Just 36% approve of his handling of the economy. Here now, former advisor to Senator Joe Manchin, Jonathan Cott. Jonathan, nice to see you. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Um, I, I keep hearing from moderate Democrats this fear that running on Donald Trump's terrible and Donald Trump's racist will get the base to turn out or might get some of the base to turn out is not going to get the swing voters that Joe Biden needs. Yeah, I think he has to have a two-pronged approach. I think we follow politics every day. The average voter hasn't paid attention to the daily politics and kind of forgets what Donald Trump did on January 6th in the aftermath. So Biden has the problem of reminding voters about that. But then he also has to take a page out of the Donald Trump playbook and brag about his accomplishments. I think that's why his poll numbers are so low. He's not actually out there talking about everything that he's accomplished in his first term. I I would argue he does do economic events a lot. They just don't seem they don't seem to resonate. How much of the problem, though, is the, the third part of going to war with the army you have or the candidate you have? This is a guy who can't do six events a day. He can't barnstorm. They'll put him out from 10 to 4 and they'll give him one or two events a day. It's just he did, he did a prime he did what should have been a prime time campaign event at Valley Forge in the middle of the day. Well, I think part of his problem is he's actually president. Now, it's easier to run for president when you're not president because you just oh, have Oh, come on. You got Air Force time. 1 as president. Right, but he actually has to he has a full-time day job and, you know, it's not even a day job, it's a 24-hour job. He's got to do that every day and fit in campaigning and getting around the country while all of that is going on. So I do think as you kick that is That is the best spin on how it's difficult to run for re-election as an incumbent (laughs) that I have ever heard. (laughs) The difficulties (laughs) of the incumbency has never quite been articulated that way. This one I think is interesting, though. There are a lot of those on the left, uh, and then we're going to play now from uh, Kristen Welker on Meet the Press uh, and Al Sharpton as well talking about the warning from President Obama. Take a listen. 
Does the campaign see this warning by former President Obama as a wake-up call? Will there be structural changes to the campaign? Look, our campaign has been awake since the president announced in April, which is why we've come out the gate swinging. Is that Barack Obama, despite the lofty place he has in history, has his ear to the ground and he's hearing the rumblings? What is Barack Obama hearing the rumblings of? I think Barack Obama is hearing the rumblings from the left. I think what Joe Biden needs to do is tack back to the center. That's actually how he won the Democratic primary, and that's how he won the 2020 election. He needs to go back to the center where actually the majority of the country is. The base of our country is the 60% in the middle, not the extremes on each side. I think they're pushing him too far to the left, and he's responding to that, and that may be where Al Sharpton is. That's not where most of the country is. He needs to get back. And there's a big problem, right? He's got to try to get his base to turn out, which is what you hear on the January 6th stuff and what we heard today, and then that doesn't necessarily work with the center. It's good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Turns out the weather folks, they didn't exactly nail the forecast for this weekend's big storm. As you remember, we were pretty skeptical about the newsworthiness of a snowstorm in Boston in January. And yet now we have gotten so concerned with the weather that the President of the United States with Air Force One and a convoy of Suburbans moves a speech because of a few snowflakes. George Washington didn't have that luxury. One can only imagine cable news in the winter of 1777. 1777. Turns out the storm actually wasn't that newsworthy. And you had quite a few thoughts on social media about it. Christian Jarrett wrote, maybe we're paying so much attention to the snow so we'll be distracted to watch all of them Epstein names accumulate. Thanks, Christian. A blizzard could not distract us from these new allegations. Why, we've led with it for three nights in a row. Phil Skills said, could use some global warming right about now. I will feel the exact same way in Iowa later this week. The high, I think, is negative two degrees. We'll see you on social media at Leland Vittert. Coming up next, the defense secretary hides his own hospitalization for days. The Biden administration says nothing to see. So what if something bad happened, like a war? President Biden is not considering firing the defense secretary. He was secretly admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. The Pentagon is not really saying anything beyond the fact that they say he's recovering well. Healthcare, well care, so you can compare your options, coverage, and pricing across multiple carriers. If you are new to Medicare, recently moved, or losing coverage, make the free call to the number on your screen. Give your zip code to the licensed insurance agent that answers, and they'll walk you through the entire process step by step. It's that easy. I just became eligible for Medicare, so I call to find a plan that fits my budget. For free no obligation consultation, call 800 591 2197. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is facing intense scrutiny this morning over an undisclosed hospital stay and treatment in the ICU. He was admitted one week ago, but senior White House officials were not told for three days. Sometimes you in Washington, you have to figure out exactly what the problem is and what the scandal is. It's not that the Secretary of Defense spent four days in the intensive care unit without telling the press. You can argue whether the press had a right to know or not. It's that his boss, the president of the United States, didn't know he was gone. And we still don't know why he was in the hospital. He returned home 
the next day after surgery on December 22nd. New Year's Day, an ambulance takes Austin to Walter Reed and the Secretary of Defense goes into intensive care. The next day, the Pentagon's number two, Kathleen Hicks, began assuming some of the Secretary of Defense's responsibilities. It's unclear what explanation she was given to assume duties. And the president, nor his national security advisor, got a heads up that if he needed to launch a nuclear missile, someone else was going to pick up the phone. Two days later, Hicks was still in Puerto Rico on vacation. Today, Lloyd Austin's still in the hospital. The Pentagon can't say how long he will be at Walter Reed, nor will they say what elective medical procedure he had to start with. California Congressman, member of the House Armed Services Committee, John Garamendi, is with us. Congressman, I appreciate it. I can't figure out kind of what is worse, that Lloyd Austin tried to cover this up, or that the President of the United States, at a time when U.S. troops we know were under attack in the Middle East, didn't talk to his Secretary of Defense for four days. Well, let's just take things apart piece by piece. First of all, it's not unusual for the President to not talk to the Secretary of Defense every day. Uh, Certainly, there are plenty of issues going on around the world. And there are a lot of people that are monitoring those situations every moment of the day, including those at the Pentagon who report ultimately to uh, to Secretary Austin, as well as to other uh, department heads. So what do we have here? We have a situation where a standard operating procedure was not followed. Beyond that, the nation is still going forward. Our problems are still with us. Uh, and they will continue to be in the future. The good news is nobody knew that the secretary was out of pocket. Our enemies didn't know. So they didn't have the opportunity to engage in additional mischief. Come on, Congressman, I I can't imagine spinning the idea that the president of the United States, his national security advisor, wasn't told that the man he would rely on in the event of a nuclear war or the need to launch a military operation was in the ICU as a good thing. Well, first of all, the Secretary of Defense is not in the direct line for the launching of missiles. No, but he's, he's on the call. Is, he's on the principal's call. Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And therein lies a problem that we've always had with Trump, is that Trump by himself, and Biden for that matter, could launch nuclear weapons without the Secretary of Defense in the line. That's a problem. That's a policy issue that we ought to deal with uh, in the Congress. It's an ongoing policy, as we've been discussed many, many times. However, the military does go on. The commanders, that is the uh, area commanders, for example, in the Middle East, Europe, and so forth, they are fully authorized to take whatever defensive action they need to take. And in fact, that is going on in Iraq uh, as the uh, Iran right. takes action there. So does the Secretary of Defense have to be online every moment? No. Should he have to inform the president? Absolutely. There was a standard operating procedure that was not followed here. That needs All to right. be addressed. Fair enough. Well, we will, we will, we will watch it. We will watch and see. Um, I, you know, they say in Washington, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. So we'll see what else uh, happened. Congressman, we got to run. No, Thank no, you. We don't know that there's Ooh. a cover-up here. We've got the Secretary oh. of Defense in the hospital. Okay. All right. All right. Fair enough. We'll if see, we'll see you back here in Washington. Find 
Let me point you out to some real opportunities for Congress. Okay. <laughs> Congress, and we got to go. I'll see. You, I'll see you back here in Washington to continue the conversation. Conservatives now love hoodie-loving Senator John Fetterman. Well, they love him, but did he really switch sides? No, you did run for lieutenant governor and senator. Uh, as a progressive, you're now rejecting that label. What would you call yourself? Uh, I would just call myself a, a Democrat, and I believe that I'm on the right side of issues, whether that's being very pro-choice, maybe that I believe that is being pro-union, and if I believe that's for pro-Israel. Uh, Democratic Senator John Fetterman defending himself against charges he sold out the progressive cause. Like this now from Seng Uger. Now John Fetterman is telling everyone how he's not a progressive. He rejects us and is now calling Harvard Pinko, what the bleep. This is why people lose hope, because of frauds like Fetterman. You work hard to get a progressive elected, and they turn into Republicans instantly. Of course, just a few months ago, progressives defended Fetterman against attacks over his mental health. Ingrid Jacques writes for USA Today and joins us now. I'm not sure he's a Republican, is he? No, I don't think he's a Republican whatsoever, but I think it says a lot about our, our current uh, cultural climate when someone that just shows a little common sense is, is suddenly you know, treated as a traitor by their party. Um, he's just come out on very, with very um, rational stances on um, his support for Israel, um, on thinking that Senator Bob Menendez really should just go away. And he's also recognized that there's a crisis at the border. And for that, he's being treated like, like he's abandoned. Yeah, doesn't, this though, doesn't this kind of work the same way, though, on the Republican side, um, that if you want to make a deal on the budget or if you don't believe in deporting everybody, then suddenly you're a heretic? <laughs> Um, you're, you're suddenly a heretic as well. And, and that if you if you don't follow the party orthodoxy exactly, it's not seen as uh, something to be proud of or anything else. But the compromise is now a dirty word in Washington. Right. And the, the party establishment will find somebody who is who's more more pure and will follow the ethos more in primary. Right. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. It happens on both sides. We saw this with um Wyoming rep Liz Cheney, when she stood up to Trump, she was hailed by Democrats as, um, you know, as, as wonderful suddenly. Even though she's still conservative, John Fetterman is still a Democrat. But he's just showing that he can stand for issues okay. even when they when they go against his party's uh, mantra. Yeah. And well, in a way, John Fetterman is now one of the more interesting men in Washington, which who would have known um, when he was elected a year and a half ago. Hey, Ingrid, this was great. Great conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Great week ahead. We'll start it in Washington. We will end it in Iowa ahead of the Iowa caucuses. It's Monday. Here's Chris. everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Monday. We have breaking news. So what do you say? Let's get after it. First, sex, lies, and yes, videotapes. Claims that Epstein had secret sex tapes of high-powered associates. Who? And really, we have answers. Hey, 